Uh, my name is Jeff, if we haven't met. Excited to see you. We are in a series called Babylon. We have about, well, actually, location, location, location is the name of our series. I always forget that. Um, because the Bible starts in the Garden of Eden and it ends in the New Jerusalem, but we spend a lot of time in the middle pages of the Bible uh, in exile in Babylon, whether that's literally for the people of God or metaphorically. We're in Babylon. But we're in Daniel 4, and I, I just thought it does a good job of, of kind of contextualizing where we're at and why we're looking at Daniel 4. You're going to keep this idea of being human or beastly before you as we journey through the text this morning. And I actually love the way they end. I love this phrase. I might have to adopt it a little bit, but he said we can, we can rule the world in partnership with God Jesus style. I want to rule Jesus style. That's cool. And power of service, humility, and self-giving love. Well, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 4. We're going to cover a lot of ground. It's a long chapter, and I kind of, I want you to get a sense for the whole chapter. But we'll start with verses 4 and 5. Hang out in verses 4 or 5 a little bit, just so you can feel a little bit about what what we're going to chat about. Daniel 4, verse 4, and I, Nebuchadnezzar, he was that that strong, powerful uh, king that squashes, you know, in the video. Nebuchadnezzar, he's the king of Babylon. He's the one who exiles Daniel. I, Nebuchadnezzar, listen to this language, was living in my palace in comfort and prosperity. What a phrase. I'm living in luxury. But one night I had a dream that frightened me. I saw visions that terrified me as I lay in my bed. Uh, If you read through the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar actually has several terrifying, I'm going to call them this morning, anxious dreams. He's living in comfort and prosperity. He's living in luxury, and yet he's having trouble sleeping at night. He's having anxious dreams. He's freaking out. I want to spend a little time talking about how you and I live in an age of anxiety, an age of freaking out. Everything around us is perpetuating a sense of anxiety. It's part of what it means to be in exile in Babylon. You and I are told and reminded every day in thousands of ways that we don't have enough of what we need to truly be secure and happy. Or we're told that someone else has found a way to have more than us of what we want. And all of this in modern day Babylon creates a land of perpetual anxiety. It's an age of anxiety I was listening to someone give like probably like five or six reasons. I'm going to give you two reasons that I just found thoughtful, worth thinking about as you think about your own anxiety, and then a third reason that that will reconnect us with this Daniel chapter four. But the first thing to think about, we live in, in a time where it's almost, there's an almost inescapable presence of voices and noises that technology brings to us. There's, there's always noise and always voices And this is the interesting piece. There are always people delivering bad news to us or offering bad advice to us. That's part of the anxiety that we feel. It's difficult to escape the bad news and the bad advice. And part of what's so hard about the bad news is it's overpowering and disempowering to constantly hear news about catastrophes that you can do nothing about. Yesterday, I was minding my own business. I pull out my phone. I load up the internet, and a news story pops up. Uh, Canadian Armageddon. 
Apparently there are forest fires breaking loose in Canada right now and it's really scary. I can do nothing about it. I just, it's just more bad news. You get it on a macro level, you might get it on a, another child has died in, in the crib, right? There's just, there's just so much and we just, there's nothing, we can't do anything about it. We just, lots of noise, lots of bad news, lots of bad advice and, and you feel powerless and it creates anxiety. Or, and we've talked a little bit about this, we in our modern day Babylon world, we treat all suffering as abnormal and unhealthy, and we spend a lot of our lives, maybe most of our lives, trying to avoid or numb any pain we feel or might possibly feel. Now, we live in a time where we know a lot of ways to deaden pain. Some of it's good, some of it's not good. When I go to the dentist, I'm glad that we know how to deaden pain, (laughs) I don't want to feel that pain echoing in my mouth for a long time. But there's some pain that should never be deadened. And I do believe, as we've been formed in modern-day Babylon, that many of us have lost lost touch with the ancient wisdom that tells us the difference between the kind of suffering we should bear and the kind of suffering we should try to be freed from. And all of this creates anxiety, right? Because if you're suffering too much, it makes you anxious. But I would also, even being a pastor who just observes and is curious about people, I would offer to you that not suffering when you should creates an even deeper anxiety. Not suffering when you should. Not being able to feel the pain that is yours to feel because you live in a broken world. We've talked about this many times, but we don't grieve well in modern-day Babylon. I mean, one of the greatest resources that God gives us is a prayer of lament. And many of us don't know how to pray. We don't know how to grieve well. And I've talked about this earlier in the series. I said if we're going to be faithful to our identity as followers of this crucified Messiah, we need to be, on some level, at least expectant of suffering. Maybe never okay with it, but expectant of it. Because here's the thing, Jesus never promised that you won't suffer. Those are lies from Babylon. That is just propaganda to, to buy your allegiance. Jesus never said you won't suffer, but what he did say is you won't suffer alone, that he's with you, that, that the God of all creation has given such dignity to our position of pain and suffering in a broken world that he has entered into it with us and for us. <laughs> That's what we learn. But if you don't know that, it's just more anxiety, right? We, we live in an age of anxiety. Well, here's the third point. It'll get us back to Daniel chapter 4. And this is what I want to say as we talk about anxious dreams is that I, I'll say this for me, and I don't think I'm alone. I think our dreams have been co-opted by Babylon. We've been formed by this Babylonian story, and we have dreamed, we dream of being on top. To use the language from the video, we want to be on top so that we can rule the world on our own terms. If you pay attention to this theme, these iterations of Babylon that play out through the Bible, you will see that the kings of Babylon think they have the right to rule the world and shape history according to their own agenda. And again, if you want to know what heaven thinks about that, read Psalm chapter 2. Heaven's pretty clear. But as a result of Babylon trying to shape the world and history according to its own agenda, 
Those who live in Babylon are prone to anxiety. And we're all scrambling and hustling to get to the top so that we can be in control of setting the agenda. And we can have what we want or what we think we need. And if you ever pause to think about, as we'll see, the madness, the insanity of this, you do realize that the higher up the ladder you get, the more likely you are to be subject to anxiety. Because as soon as you get to number one, you inherit this unusual, peculiar anxiety that the only place to go is down. There's no more rungs up the ladder. All I, and it's just this anxiety that just builds and builds. What if I become number two? What if I become number 200? When you're at the top, you can only go down. And if you live in a culture that forms you and shapes you in this narrative, it just perpetuates and creates more and more anxiety. We've talked about this before, but when life is viewed as a game of competitive acquisition, the result is anxiety. And the good news of the gospel is that life is not a competitive game to be won. It is a gift to be lived. Life is a gift that God has generously gifted, graced to you. Don't make it a game. Receive it as a gift. Be grateful for what you've been given. But, but because for most of us, maybe, possibly, probably all of us, because Babylon has co-opted our dreams, we find ourselves in one of two places. We are always striving for more. I got to get up one more rung of the ladder. Or... Because we probably have different goals or standards that we're aiming at. And every once in a while, you might actually achieve or reach that goal or that standard that you've been aiming at. But what happens? I mean, you listen to stories. I'm a pastor. I watch people. What happens when people achieve their Babylonian goals? You know what everyone always says? This is it? This is all? You mean I've sacrificed all of this for maybe years for this? A momentary sense of, of, of happiness and now it's gone and now what? Now there's more, now there's a new ladder. You know, like, and it's just, it's just anxiety. It just, it's an age of anxiety. I read a quote this week. I thought it was interesting. It says this, you are afraid of surrender because you don't want to lose control. But you never had control. All you ever had was anxiety. It's modern-day Babylon. So back to Daniel 4. Now we're going to meet Nebuchadnezzar, who is a real king from history. But he's also, I mean, the biblical writers are so brilliant. If you just pause to pay attention of their masterful literary work. And so Nebuchadnezzar is presented to us as a part of the story. But, but even the way the chapter unfolds, is he's kind of a personification of all that it means to be Babylon. And the journey that you go on, if you are going to continue to try to be in control, set history according to your own agenda, your own terms, the insanity that it leads to. So Daniel chapter 4, let's pick up in verse 6. Uh, it says this, so I issued an order, Nebuchadnezzar is, is talking, I, I issued an order calling in all the wise men of Babylon. Actually, sometimes the Babylonians are called Chaldeans, just as you talk about them in history, the Chaldean people. And so I was listening to a pastor kind of unpack this passage and he said, Nebuchadnezzar calls together the Chaldean Intelligence Agency. The CIA, right? So here you go. You've got Babylon, CIA, all the wise men of Babylon, and, and Nebuchadnezzar, I brought him to tell me what my dream meant. But it turns out these magicians, enchanters, astrologers, fortune tellers, the CIA of Babylon, they couldn't tell me what it meant. 
But Daniel, Daniel came before me and I told him the dream. It says his name was Belteshazzar. Again, because this is, we talked about this before, it's one of the things that Babylon will do is try to change your identity. Try to make you think you're somebody that you're not. They're crafty at that. It's demonic and satanic. We talked about that previously. So you've got Daniel. He's, he's going to hear this dream from Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 10. He says, while I was lying in my bed, this is what I dreamed. I saw a large tree in the middle of the earth. Try to picture this. The tree grew very large and strong and reaching high into the heavens for all the world to see. Again, if you've been with us in our series, you can, it's, it's almost another metaphorical picture of the Tower of Babel, right? This structure that grows, goes to the heavens. It had fresh green leaves loaded with fruit for all to eat. Wild animals lived in its shade and birds nested in its branches and all the world was fed from this tree. Very impressive. Very impressive. And Nebuchadnezzar says, and this is where his anxiety starts to kick in. I lay there dreaming, you know, this is impressive. I'm on top of the world. And a messenger, a holy one, a watcher, an angel comes from heaven and says, cut it down. Chop down that tree. Oh, but I'm on top. Cut down the tree. I'm going to fall. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar is rightfully anxious. And notice how like this, this dream just... Listen to the imagery, how, how like total this is. Shake off the leaves, scatter the fruit, chase away the wild animals from the shade, get the birds out of the branches, leave the stump and the roots in the ground, but then bind them with a band of iron and bronze, and then surrounded by tender ground. I mean, it was quite the picture. And then as, as he's hearing this voice and seeing this tree, he hears this, now let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. And Who's the him, right? Now, Nebuchadnezzar's dreaming. He might have an idea, but he doesn't like this dream, and he doesn't want the him to be him. Let him live with the wild animals. Let him be, as we saw in the video, beastly. For seven periods of time, let him have the mind of a wild animal instead of the mind of a human. He'll be more beast than human. And this has been decreed by these angels, commanded. I mean, this is, this is what the Most High who rules over the whole kingdom of the world says. He gives the kingdoms to anyone he chooses. And notice this, if you were with us last week and we looked at Mary's song, even to the lowliest of people. This is the way God works. Belteshazzar, Daniel, that was the dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, King of Babylon, had. Now tell me what it means because my CIA is useless. You tell me because the Spirit of God is in you. So upon hearing this, Daniel was overcome for a time, frightened by the meaning of the dream. And then the king said to him, don't be alarmed by the dream and what it means. Right? Daniel was alarmed because, I mean, you don't, I mean, with an oppressive tyrant king, you don't tell them bad news. You spin it. I mean, you, 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 I mean you're putting your life on the line. But Daniel has earned a lot up to this point, and so... Trust God. I mean, you just read through the whole book of Daniel. This man trusts God. He's not afraid of suffering. And so he says, all right, verse 22. Well, Nebuchadnezzar, that tree, your majesty, that's you. You've grown strong and you are great and your greatness reaches up to heaven. Your rule to, to the ends of the earth. I mean, there's nothing like this Babylonian empire. But this is what the dream means. Verse 24, you... Uh, you know what the Most High has declared is going to happen. You're going to be driven from human society. 
and you're, you're going to live in the fields with wild animals, and, and you're going to eat grass like a cow. Like You're going to be beastly. And you're going to live this way until you learn that the most high rules over the kingdoms of the world, and, and he gives them to anyone he chooses. Now, the stump, the roots of the tree are there in the ground. That means you will receive your kingdom back again when you have learned that heaven rules pretty bold and courageous for Daniel to tell this. But what I want to just reflect upon just for a second is, why is it? I mean, why is it that Daniel's able to interpret this dream in the Babylonian CIA, all these wise men are unable to? What's going on? Well, well, we could say, and I think it is true, that the Holy Spirit has enlightened Daniel, has given him wisdom beyond himself. But But I think even more, if you just pause and think about it, don't you think that the respective stories that these two men are operating from impacts the way they understand what's happening in history? You've got Daniel who has studied the Hebrew scriptures. And he knows about Egypt, which is just another iteration of Babylon. He knows about how the people of God were enslaved and oppressed by Pharaoh and how God looked at these lowly ones and rescued them and lifted. Daniel knows the story. He celebrates it every year at Passover. It shapes him. It shapes his identity. He understands his place in this world and who the one true God is. Daniel currently is in exile. I mean, he's been removed from his home. His home's been destroyed. And so he's encountering this dream and he has wisdom and vision and experience that Nebuchadnezzar, who has only ever been on top, will never be able to understand until he himself is humbled. Last week, as we were looking at Mary's song, I invited you to to think through some of your own places of humility and where you've been humbled in your life and, and how God can meet you there and lift you up. Have you ever had these experiences? I've had these. I've had these experiences where you're talking with somebody who's only been on top in whatever respective situation or circumstance you're talking about. And they're and they're encountering difficulty and they don't they don't know how to understand what's going on, but you've been humbled. And you can see all these things that they can't see because they've never been humbled in this area before. They've only been on top. You know what I'm talking about? Daniel's been humbled, and so he can see truths that are blind to you when you're at the top of the ladder. Your head's in the clouds. (laughs) And as we'll talk about, you're so self-consumed, you just just ignore a lot of people because it's all about you. Verse 27 then becomes kind of a turning point. I I view it as an invitation in this chapter. I, I don't think this is all necessarily bad news. I think it does come as an invitation to Nebuchadnezzar. It, it can be different. King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 27, please accept my advice. Stop sinning and do what is right. And in this particular circumstance, what is doing what is right? What is stop sinning here for Nebuchadnezzar? Break from your wicked past and be merciful to the poor. And then he says, perhaps then you will continue to prosper. That's why it's an invitation. Look, if if you can get your head out of the clouds and pay attention to all these people around you who are hurting, Who knows what God could do in your kingdom? You have no idea how amazing your kingdom could be if you became a leader, a king who served and sacrificed and and looked at all the quote-unquote little people around you. What would your kingdom look like? Becomes Nebuchadnezzar's test. Is he going to let his life and the kingdom he rules bear fruit for the nations, which here is equated by showing mercy to the poor? 
Is he going to take care of other humans around him? I mean, there's a real sense that echoes throughout the biblical story of what a community of God's people looks like. You know a community that represents God's way of ruling the world when it takes care of others and it gives itself away for the well-being of others, especially people who don't have access to everything they need. Read the book of Amos, read the book of Micah, read the book of James, or I was even just thinking, just, just kind of the way that just pops out of there. But have mercy on the poor. It's just a thing that runs, it's, it's the heart of God. And I was thinking of Paul in Galatians chapter 2. He's kind of defending his gospel. He's met the resurrected Jesus and he's kind of getting approval from the, the apostolic leadership at the time, James, Peter, and John. And in Galatians chapter 2 verse 9, I always thought this was interesting, right? He says, Paul says, in fact, James, Peter, and John... The pillars of the church, they recognized what God was doing, the gift he had given me, and they accepted Barnabas and me as their co-workers. They, they realized that we are preaching the truth. And they encouraged us, okay, I know it's crazy, but keep preaching to the Gentiles, and for now we're called to the Jews, so let's, let's work on this together as God's kingdom goes forth. And then it says this in verse 10, their only suggestion was that we keep on helping the poor, which I have always been eager to do. This is just something that marks the people of God, may even help us with our anxiety in Babylon. (laughs) Maybe don't make it so much about you, and maybe just maybe get your head out of the clouds. Me too, all of us. (laughs) And pay attention to the needs around us. So it's a critical point. What is is Nebuchadnezzar going to do? It kind of gets comical at this point. Verse 28, but all these things did happen to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, he was taking a walk on the flat roof of the royal palace in Babylon. He's looking down at his city. And look at this. As he looked out across the city, he said, look at this great city of Babylon. By my own power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. I'm the man. Look at me. That's what he said. And the Bible says, while these words were still in his mouth, (laughs) he's not even done with his self-congratulations. Oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, this message is for you. You're no longer ruler of this kingdom. You will be driven from human society and you will live in the fields. You will become beastly. You will be more beast than human for seven periods until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. In that same hour, the judgment was fulfilled, and Nebuchadnezzar was driven from human society, and he ate grass like a cow drenched with the dew of heaven. And listen to this. He's almost, if you try to picture this, he's almost like, like describing almost like a mutant, right? He lived this way until his hair was as long as eagle's feathers. What an interesting comparison, right? And his nails were like bird's claws. So we know what Nebuchadnezzar chooses. It's all mine. It's all mine. I always think of the seagulls and finding Nemo, right? Mine, 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 mine. And heaven says, chop down the tree. If you're going to act like a beast, then be a beast. And he forgets who he is. Heaven says, if you're going to ignore the poor, you're not humane enough to be called a human. Because if you were human, you would consider the people in the shadows that are overlooked, that you try to keep invisible all the time. 
the ones that are slaving and sweating and oppressed and they're just barely getting by. Nebuchadnezzar, it is within your power and your influence to rearrange things, but you refuse to do it. So you might as well be a beast. In other words, heaven calls it insanity. We talked about the principalities and powers a few weeks ago. Heaven calls it insanity when rich and powerful people and communities seek their own glory to the exclusion of the poor and oppressed. Heaven says it's crazy, it's inhumane, it's beastly. And if you were with us last week and you're tracking this week, one thing that we learn from God is that it seems he takes particular delight in chopping down big, arrogant kingdoms that think they're awesome. And he loves to set the opportunity to rule on the humble backs of no names because they can see like Daniel sees, because they've been humbled. This is part of the upside down kingdom that Jesus is always talking about. When humans exalt themselves, they activate the inner animal and become beasts and God will chop them down exile them to the wilderness to be with the beasts that they act like. And he loves then to replace them by exalting the humble no-namers to rule in their place. That's why Jesus says things like the last will be first and the first will be last. In Babylon, there there are no self-help books that say, okay, find a way to be weak. Everything says you need to be strong and you need to be strong enough to pull yourself up all by yourself, all the time. That's why we're so lonely. And we read enough of that and we hear enough bad advice to pull yourself up all by yourself, all the time, and we just slowly but ever so surely get more and more focused on ourselves, And we forget about the people around us. And we think because the principalities and powers promise security and peace and happiness, we think it'll bring that, but it never delivers. And we're just stuck. We're not in control. We just have anxiety. But in the upside down kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, we are told that the true way to honor God with whatever privilege or authority or influence that you have, the true way to honor God is to give that influence and authority away to others. Include them and, and, and find a way to help them be exalted as God lifts you up. But if you're going to keep it all to yourself, God is going to chop you down. So this is how it then ends. After this time had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, finally, finally, instead of looking down, I looked up to heaven. And it says, this is why I was saying, heaven says you're insane. He says, my sanity finally returned. I was beastly. I was insane. But my sanity returned and I praised and worshiped the most high God. (laughs) And he says, I, his rule is everlasting. His kingdom is eternal. Verse 36, when my sanity returned to me, so did my honor and, my glory, and the glory and kingdom, right? I, I was restored when I finally acknowledged that God is the one true God. In verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify the, and honor the king of heaven. All his acts are just and true. And how does this chapter end? And he is able to humble the proud. <laughs> Here's the thing, that's the words of Nebuchadnezzar. He's, God is able to humble the proud and exalt the humble. Look, if you and I continue to, to, just be, to just drift and be formed by the dominant culture in modern-day Babylon, then we will buy into the dominant insanity. We will buy what the advertisers sell because there is always money for them to make off of our anxiety. 
But as Christians, we are meant to be different and live into a different story. And look at what Jesus says in Luke chapter 13. I I do think there's a little bit of a veiled reference to this tree in Daniel 4. But I want you to think about, I described climbing the ladder and hustling and scrambling to get to the top. But but just, just check your anxiety level as I talk to you about the way Jesus' kingdom comes. In Luke 13 verse 18, Jesus said, what is the kingdom of God like? What is my kingdom like, Jesus says. Well, let me illustrate it. It's like a tiny mustard seed. Okay, I can fathom that. I get that. It's a tiny mustard seed that a man planted in a garden, and it grows. It grows slowly and quietly, but it grows, and it becomes a tree, and eventually the birds make their nests in its branches. The kingdom of God becomes this massive tree that actually does connect heaven to earth. But notice it comes so differently. I mean, my anxiety level goes down when I think about how the kingdom of God comes not by force, or by strength, or competitive acquisition, but Zechariah says, by the Spirit of God. It comes by a, as quietly as a little seed. It comes small. The kingdom of God mostly comes in small congregations of people who confess Jesus as Lord and then follow him and try to live this Jesus life, Jesus style. <laughs> mostly in small congregations of people who are learning to do life together and they have fights because we're all broken and we bring our baggage and our sin with us. But then because Jesus and the Spirit of God is with us, we, we learn to heal and forgive one another and we work it out. And it's not always super impressive, but it's how the kingdom of God comes. Slowly and quietly and unobtrusively, God does his work. Look, if we allow our soul to be formed by Babylon, it leads to all kinds of insanity and anxiety. But to be a Christian is to be a part of a different story with different dreams. Not anxious dreams, but beautiful dreams, peaceful dreams. Dreams of trusting in God and and dreams of helping those around us in need. And I just want to kind of end our time. I want to read from 1 Peter 5. I've just been paying attention to even just the last two weeks of this theme of the proud being brought low and the humble being exalted. It's amazing how much this travels through the scriptural story. Let me just, 1 Peter 5, it's where Peter, we, we looked at this earlier in the series, greetings from Babylon, Peter says at the end of this chapter. He writes this, and all of you dress yourselves in humility as you relate to one another. Why? Because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. He's quoting a different part of Scripture when he says that. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, and at the right time, He will lift you up in honor. And then I just thought this was interesting. That's why I want to close with this. As he's talking about you and I and our our places of humility being lifted up, he says, Give all your worries and cares to God, for He cares about you. Your translation may say, cast all your anxiety. Cast it all. Cast all your anxiety, all your anxiousness on God because he cares for you. God cares for you. Look, in an age of anxiety, who you trust for peace and safety is who you worship. So trust in the one who's overwhelmed death with his life. Cast all your anxiety on the one who conquered death because he cares for you. And enter into the peace, the peaceableness of his kingdom. I really believe one of the most radical and countercultural things you can do today as a Christian is to live with peace. To be at peace. 
to embody the peace of Christ, not as a cliche, but in reality. Do not lead the way in freaking out. That's the way of Babylon. Lead the way in peace because Jesus Christ is Lord right now. We are not waiting for him to go to the cross. He already has. He's already defeated the enemy. Jesus Christ reigns. So you and I have peace. It may feel crazy, but guess what God is doing? He's working it all out for good. Because that's what our God does. We may not understand. It may feel like Holy Saturday, right? Something bad happens and we call it Good Friday. Because God is using it for good. Holy Saturday, nothing happens. I know that it feels that way a lot. But Resurrection Sunday, Easter morning, God is doing something new. Hang on to that hope. Put your hope in Jesus and know something about his peace. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, that's what we're going to ask right now. We want you to remind us of who we are, our true home in you. Lord, we don't want Babylon to define us. We don't want to be insane. We don't want to be beastly. We don't want to have our head caught in the clouds. We don't want to be so focused on ourselves that we become beasts and don't show mercy to the poor and needy. So awaken within us a new life. Give us a quiet confidence. Give us a calm contentment. Help us to cast our anxiety on you so that we can know something of this life that you offer. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.